Good morning again. If you'd like to contribute to uh, that offering beyond sort of if you didn't have cash on you or something today and you'd like to, to contribute towards groceries for that family that's, that's resettled near Midway, um, you, can, you can give online or, or bring a check next week and just um, we'll, we'll definitely make sure that they have the groceries that we've committed to getting them this week and then we'll, we'll let you know, keep you updated on, on if our relationship with them is going to continue based on what World Relief kind of tells us. Thankful for Rebecca for following through on that for us. Um, the second lesson in our bulletin this week in the lectionary is Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This parable is simple enough. Uh, I mean, Luke, Luke even begins it with a, a sort of, you know, spoiler alert. He, he told this parable to some who thought they were righteous and regarded others with contempt uh, it's, it, it, at first glance, it seems to be much less mysterious than some of Jesus' parables. A couple of weeks ago, we had a parable that um, I still don't know what's about, even though I preached on it. Um, and this parable is like, uh, here it is. This is what this parable is about. And um, you've, you've heard this one before. Two guys walk into a temple. One is a Pharisee with phylacteries tied to his forehead, scripture wrapped around his arm. His beard is uncut. His robe is long and flows behind him into the temple. His contemporary today, I don't know, it's dangerous to do this contemporary thing in a parable about judging. Uh, At first I wrote that his contemporary was the guy with the Hebrew word tattooed on his right shoulder wearing the John Calvin shirt that has him DJing that says John Calvin is my homeboy. And then I thought, you know what? (laughs) Bob owns that shirt. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but then I had this thought that actually trying to find any contemporary filling the Pharisee's shoes is my own participation in this culture of judgment that I'm about to preach against and that this parable warns us about. And so I had better not try to offer any contemporary examples. This is a tricky parable that way. As soon as you think you've got it, you don't. The Pharisee stands by himself prays loudly so everyone can hear him. He tells God that he is so thankful not to be like other people. He lists them so that God knows. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, even like this tax collector. He reminds God of some of the good things that he's done this week. I fast twice a week, which seems excessive even for a Pharisee. I tithe 10% of all my income. 
I'll stop the list there, but I could go on. The tax collector is, of course, the despised outcast of the Jewish culture who has no friends. He also stands far off but keeps his head bent low in contrast to the Pharisee. He beats his breast and says only, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is all very predictable. The Pharisee as the cocky antagonist and the tax collector as the sympathetic protagonist. Jesus spends a lot of time with tax collectors in the Gospels. And so in the church, they've become a very sympathetic figure. We know what's happening as soon as Jesus sets the scene. And maybe this really is as simple as it appears to be. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. The Pharisee who looks down on others will be lowered. And those who are humble will be exalted. The tax collector will have his head lifted. Maybe it's that simple. Uh, But I think in order to give this parable its due, to understand the complexity and force of this parable, we have to give the Pharisees the benefit of the doubt. We have to listen to it from their perspective. And so... um, that, you know, Jesus, Jesus gives this parable to a group of Pharisees, which is often a missing detail when we're looking at Scripture. Like, the audience matters. If Jesus was talking to a collection of tax collectors, I'm not sure this is the parable that he uses. But he's talking to a collection of, of Pharisees, and he wants to tell them a parable. And so I think if, to, to understand the fullness of this story, we have to try to understand how the Pharisees hear this. And I want to play devil's advocate, Pharisee's advocate on their behalf a little bit because I think when we do that, it muddies the water on this parable a little bit. And, and, and frankly, when you're dealing with a parable, um, I, I feel like when you're preaching a parable, if, 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 it, if you muddy the waters, you're probably doing the parable justice rather than if you like really simplify it and make it clear. Because Jesus tells stories to muddy the waters a little bit for people. And so he's, he's speaking to these Pharisees. And I, So from their perspective, right, Pharisees, listen, sue us. We do the right things. We follow God's laws, God's commands. God told us to do these things. We do them. We tithe. Do you know what that means? That means we take our money and we give it to the poor. That's what tithing means. We ensure that the temple's funds are occasionally used to help the destitute. It is more convenient for the gospel writers to paint us with some broad brush that we're all corrupt, that none of us respected anything Jesus said. It's more convenient for you to paint us that way, but that's simply not the case. Listen, we're just, we're not all corrupt, we're not all terrible, that simply isn't true. We are trying to follow God's laws. If you want an enemy, the Sadducees, you got the Sadducees right in the gospels. The Sadducees, if you want an enemy, That's them. They're far wealthier than we are, and they are in the pocket of Rome. The Sadducees are completely unreasonable. They don't even care about Israel anymore. They are lining their pockets with the temple funds. They they bend over for every request that the Roman government makes of them. We advocate for reasonable political options. We want some freedom to worship, but we also understand that we have to pay some dues to Rome because they're in power. We advocate for our own people. The tax collector is not a sympathetic figure. Tax collectors are men who use the institutional power, 
of a corrupt government to take money from the poor to make themselves wealthy. They're loan sharks who keep the poor poor. They are spineless sellouts of their own people who keep their heads under a rock so they don't have to confront the reality of the corruption that they are tacitly endorsing. We are right. And the tax collector in your parable is going to be here next week confessing the same sins after taking advantage of the same people. So yes, forgive me, Jesus, if I'm a little proud not to be like him. That's my defense of the Pharisee. That's what I imagine they want to say in their own defense to some of these parables that are directed at them. The parable is a bit more complicated than it seems to be at first. I may be imposing a little bit of 2019 into the heads of the Pharisees, but it's definitely not clear cut as clear-cut for them as it is for us. This parable is not simply a, yeah, go get him, you know, go get him, Jesus, stick it to the high and mighty. I mean, there's a little bit of that in here. But the tax collector, every time the tax collector's mentioned, um, we, we kind of, uh, and I, I do this as well, preachers often throw the tax collector in the bucket with the Samaritan woman and the prostitute and the woman caught in adultery and the little children. And the tax collector is none of those things. The tax collector is, 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 is not... You wouldn't like him. <laughs> he, he's not a likable guy. And he's wealthy. He's, he's, in one of the, he's in the top class. And so when Jesus, early on in the Gospels, is going into the tax collector's house to have dinner with him and his friends, the Pharisees are like, like, hold on. Like, pump the brakes, Jesus. Like, what's going on? Um, and so whenever there's a tax collector involved in a, in a story, in a parable, it's, it's always more complicated than it seems to be at first. And I think we would miss the point of this parable if we were to make it simply about Jesus saying, one group is in the wrong and one group is in the right. And make sure you're in the group that doesn't look down on others. Because as soon as you've made that move of grouping people, you've by definition sort of created the same ecosystem of judgment that Jesus is actually condemning in this parable. Something more radical has happened. Here's what's happened. The subject has become the predicate, and the predicate has become the subject. Let me explain that. Um, Back to English class, the subject of the sentence is the person doing the action, usually the first half of the sentence. The predicate is is kind of what follows, is the result of what happens in the subject. Um, Steve shoots the basketball. Steve, Steve is, 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 is the subject. He shoots the basketball. That's what happens. That's the predicate. When you're talking in philosophy, often um, you, know, you use the idea of something being predicated upon what happens before. So the subject does something, and the result is predicated upon what happens before. The Pharisees believe that their piety, their goodness, is the subject, and that God's favor is predicated upon that subject. The Pharisee tithes, obeys the law, fasts, does all of these great things, and therefore God's favor falls upon him. The the Pharisee behaves well, subject. God looks on him with delight, predicate. The tax collector behaves immorally, 
Subject, God's anger is kindled against him. Predicate, cause and effect. The subject uh, always begets the predicate. And the subject is what we do. The predicate is how God responds to it. What Jesus is saying in this parable is not that, well, one of you is actually doing the the action better than the other. Jesus is not saying, um, you're actually doing the subject part wrong, you need to do it more like the tax collector. He is saying, actually, you are no longer the subject. You are no longer the action. You are not the person on which the outcome depends. You are no longer the subject of the sentence. You are the predicate, and God is the subject. God is now the one who has acted. When God has decided to take on flesh and dwell among us, he flips the entire thing. The predicate became the subject. God's judgment of us comes before, uh, comes before our action. God's judgment of us in Christ, which is to make us right with him, happens as the subject uh, rather than as the predicate. Does that, that make sense? Um, yeah, okay, good. Um, And of course, this is terrible news for the Pharisee who was doing a great job at being a Pharisee. And and when it depended upon um, um, being a good subject of following all the laws in order to get God's favor, the Pharisee was the best at that. And they were in charge of telling people who who was good at that and who wasn't, who was in the in-group and who was in the out-group. And when the subject depends on us, then we can create these in-groups and out-groups. And so the Pharisees, this is not good news. When the tax collector hears about the love of Christ, that Christ has acted as the subject on his behalf, he will lift his head. When the Pharisee hears about the love of Christ and that God has acted on his behalf, he will be confused, even offended by the possibility that He needed that love. If Christ is the subject, if the love of God is the action upon which everything else is predicated, then there is no longer any other to look down on. In the curriculum this week, uh, we're we're writing our own curriculum. for our, for our kids, which is, which is awesome. And in the curriculum this week, there's a drawing of, of the Pharisee who has uh, you know, his knee high on a rock and his chest is puffed out and he's praying like this. Um, and that is each of us in our own ways, looking down on others for any number of things, looking down on others for their political opinions, for being too young or too old, for the decisions people make with their money. That's not what I do. Not knowing how to properly stow their luggage in an overhead bin. I mean, it's funny, but I mean, we just find any excuse to judge people. It is, it is second nature to us. And it is a sin. In the curriculum, there's also a picture of the tax collector Shoulders hunched, head hanging, hands folded in his lap, wallowing in his sin. Perhaps the tax collector is addicted to the guilt and shame that will bring him back to the temple the same way next week. And that is us too, each in our own ways. Chest puffed, 
shoulders sagging. Life in Christ does not look like either. Life in Christ humbles the Pharisee and exalts the tax collector. It levels both of their heads so that the Pharisee will stop looking over everyone else's head and so that the tax collector will stop looking underneath everyone else's gaze. We've been doing some branding work to figure out how do we talk about ourselves as a church. And the tagline that we landed on, at least part of it, was this just this phrase, Christ at the center. And we talk a lot about what does it look like for Christ to be at the center of our worship service, which is partly why communion's at the center. We talk about what does it look like for Christ to be at the center of, of, our, of our community. And, and so we expect there to be a, a broad diversity of opinions and views and, and, and perspectives because when you're centered around Christ, there's space for all of that um, disagreement and diversity. Uh, you know, this parable asks us, what does it look like for our egos, for our sense of self to be centered around Christ, to trust in Christ's justification of us rather than in our own justification? What does it mean for Christ to be the subject, the actor, the one whose action has changed everything for us? What predicate will that lead us towards? One of the things that leads towards in this passage is the reality that there is no space in Christ to judge other people for being outside of us, for being different than us. God has acted in Christ to humble those parts of us that judge others, that view ourselves as fine without God, without one another. And God has acted in Christ to lift up those parts of us that are caught in cycles of shame and despair. The Pharisees are being asked to trust something in someone other than themselves. I think this is, man, what's behind when Jesus says, uh, you know, it's, it's harder for a rich man to enter the eye of the needle than it is for or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What will it take for the Pharisees to trust in something and someone other than themselves? It it takes the Apostle Paul encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus. It, It takes Zacchaeus in a tree being called down, the tax collector being known by name, invited to dinner. Um, I don't know what it takes for each of us to have those parts of us that need to be humbled, leveled, and those parts that need to be lifted up, raised. Um, but that's our prayer for this morning. May we encounter Christ as the, the subject of our lives this week and live out the rest uh, live out the rest of our identity as the predicate that is that is based upon the action of Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for acting on our behalf, for changing the entire equation so that we know that, uh, that our, our, our identity, our fate, our hope, our trust, all of it is, is not predicated upon um, what we've done, what we've accomplished. It's all based on what you've done on our behalf, that you've looked at each of us and said, I love you, I created you, I'm proud of you. 
help us to live into that reality this week. And help us also to remember that that is the reality that is true for every single person we encounter. Um, No matter how they stow their luggage, no matter where they come from, what they look like, uh, help us to see everyone through the lens of what you've done for them. How much you love them, that you created them, that you are proud of them. Help us to embody that this week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.